Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? Moving slowly up the stairs these days. Last week, my phone went on the on the fritz, and so I had to call Apple. And I was on the phone with them for over an hour, sitting at my kitchen table. And when I got up, I was injured. <laughs> I pinched something in my hip. You know, you're getting old when sitting for an hour causes a serious injury. So, anyway. Uh, Some of you know what I'm talking about. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 3, the New Testament. Uh, If you have your Bible, great. If not, you should find one that you can use in one of the chair racks around you. John chapter 3, as uh, many of you already know, today we're starting a new series called All In. And we're uh, exploring uh, the idea of responding individually and corporately to all that God has done for us in Jesus. In fact, as Dave just mentioned, after our third service this morning, we have a bunch of people literally going all in into the water and getting baptized as uh, followers of Jesus. And, uh, you know, for us at Parkview, baptism serves as a public expression of personal faith. It's an important step of discipleship. It's an illustration how in Jesus our sins are washed. And the Greek term, the original Greek term for baptize means to wash. Uh, It's an illustration how in Jesus our sins are washed away and we are by God's grace given new life. It's a wonderful picture of spiritual transformation. And for me, you know, seeing men and women, students and kids go through it is just another indicator of how God is on the move and changing the lives of, of more and more people. When I first came to the Chicago area, and you've heard me say this before, when I first came to Chicago area and we started this Parfu adventure, we never set out to be a big church. Uh, all I've ever really wanted to do is is tell as many people as possible about Jesus and the grace of God, teach the scriptures as faithfully as as possible, and hopefully have a spiritual impact on our on our community. And it seems it seems that God has shown us favor uh, in our efforts, and I'm humbled by the momentum that He's generated and the growth that He continues to bring uh, to our church. But as our spiritual influence grows along with our attendance, one of my concerns is that it becomes increasingly easier for people to show up on Sunday morning and be spectators of what God is doing, but never never really get involved in what he's doing, and as a result, miss out on the thrill and on the excitement of being part of the mission, of a cause greater than ourselves. And maybe it's because some people come and assume we don't need help. I hope that's not the case because we, in fact, do need help. In order to make a spiritual difference in our community and world, we need everybody involved. We need an all-in, 100% participation. And, and here's the deal. When Christians don't get involved in the mission of the church, they get bored. And that's never a good thing. In his classic book, Either Or, the famous Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, when writing on human nature, suggested that in the context of community, perhaps it's boredom that's the root of all evil. Uh, Why did he say that? He said it because boredom breeds apathy, and apathy allows evil to spread as good people do little or nothing. And so what's the cure to boredom? I think it's embracing the truth that God has gifted and resourced and called all of you to a life of of spiritual purpose. And it's actively engaging in that life. I don't think it's possible to pursue the will of God, to engage in mission and follow in the footsteps of Jesus and be bored at the same time. Boredom is a choice. It's your choice to make, to be involved or not. Boredom or excitement. And I hope you choose excitement. Uh, but just so you know, excitement is a byproduct of participation. So with that said, let me ask you a question. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, if you consider yourself a Christian, why do you, or why should you participate at all in the mission of the church? Why, why do you faithfully serve? Why do you generously give? Is it because I invite you to? Because let me tell you something, lasting servanthood and sacrificial generosity has got to go deeper than that. It's got to be about something bigger, someone bigger. It really has to be about God himself who has gone all in 
for you and me. Do we believe that? As most of us realize, the phrase all in is a colloquialism we use today to describe when a person is fully committed to, to something or to someone. They are, they are impassioned. Uh, there's no holding back. We say that, that they are all in. And you know, there are a lot of ways, that, a lot of things we could talk about in terms of God having gone all in for us. We could spend a month of Sundays talking about them. But for the sake of time, let me, let me remind you of what I see as the most significant and profound ways that God has gone all in. First, if you think about it, God is all in love. Here in John 3, specifically verse 16, we have what is arguably the most well-known, memorized, and recited verses in Scripture. And although most Christians can quote it, I think our tendency is to sort of glaze over the implication of these words that so beautifully summarize not not only God's work of redemption and rescue, but the divine motivation behind it. Uh, We're told, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved. The Greek term used here is the term agape. Uh, It's a unique term. You know, in English, uh, our word love is somewhat generic. When we say, I love pizza or I love my wife, hopefully I'm talking about two different kinds of love, right? But we use the same word. The ancient Greeks didn't do that. The ancient Greeks used different terms for love. One referred to attractional love. The other referred to friendship or brotherly love. But the term the Apostle John uses here is the term agape, which, is, which in the Greco-Roman world referred to an unqualified love, a love not motivated by the merit of the one being love, a love that's unconditional, something that goes beyond feelings, it goes beyond emotions. It represents a deliberate and disciplined choice to commit oneself to the welfare of another. It's rooted in the will and revealed through action. Now, if we're honest, I think we'll admit that that kind of love is hard for us to comprehend because as human beings, we're much more familiar with conditions, right? I'll love you if you do this or that for me. And if not, well, too bad. But John, John says God's love is completely different from that. It's not dependent on what we do or don't do, who we are or who we're not. Instead, it's a divinely unique, unreserved, unwavering, unbiased, unconditional thing. We don't need to earn it. We don't need to perform for it. We don't need to convince God to do it. He just does it. In fact, in a letter to the early church, the apostle John explains, it's not just that God loves us. It's not just that he pours out and lavishes love on us, but God is love, John says. He is love. It's part of his nature. And so in a sense, his love is a, is a kind of a one-sided, one-way deal because it's not conditioned on me. But it becomes a two-way, two-sided deal when I really begin to understand and, and experience that love and I then am, am compelled to love God in return. John explained it this way to the church. He said, we love, we love God because he first loved us. It's our response. Now, you may be wondering why I'm perseverating on this idea of God's love. Here's the reason. My fear is that many in the Christian church today have memorized John 3.16, but have never personalized it. And there's a big, there's a big, big difference. And I, I get why. I mean, when you, when you look at God's love, God's love is impressive. Yet it, it may seem impersonal. I mean, we readily, and we in the church readily affirm that God loves everybody, but because there are 7 billion people on the planet, we may feel a little lost in the mix as if we're we're just a number. But here's the reality. God's love is not divided 7 billion ways. Just as a father knows and loves all of his children equally, so God uniquely loves you. I mean, you can go ahead, you can go ahead and substitute your name in the text. For God so loved Ray. So for God so loved blank. So God so loved you. Do you believe that? Because it's true. And yet while his love is unconditional and unique to you personally, it is universal. John says, for God so loved the world. 
You know, when you stop and think about it, that's an amazing statement. It means that, that God loves you and me while at the exact same time He loves men, women, students, children, in our families, uh, among our friends, in our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, in, in our county, our state, our nation. He loves people all around the globe, those in faraway places, in cultures that are very, very different from ours. Young, old, rich, poor makes no difference. God loves those. He loves those who don't even know it, who don't even know Him, believer and unbeliever alike. John says his love precedes our belief. For me, traveling to places like India and the Middle East and meeting people who live there has really helped solidify my understanding of God being a global God and how the world is much, much bigger than just the burbs of Chicago. And God loves that world. More specifically, the people in it, every single one. He is all in love and he proved it by sending Jesus into that world. Or another way to say it is that God is all incarnate. John writes, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Keep in mind, the apostle begins his biography of Jesus by summarizing that event that changed the course of history. He writes this in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Through him, all things were made. In him was life and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Over the centuries, incarnation is the fancy theological word used to explain what John's talking about here. It's from the Latin uh, term incarnare, meaning in the flesh. And essentially, John says that in Jesus, the God who was invisible became visible, deity took on flesh and hung out with humanity. The author of life dives into the human story. I mean, it's a pretty wild idea, but it's one of the truth claims that separates Christianity from other religions, that God became a man to rescue us. And if we affirm that to be true, then there are some, there are some serious implications. For example, the incarnation demands that we embrace the message of Jesus. Just for the record, Jesus didn't merely imply divinity by way of miracles, which were impressive, or by his willingness to forgive sin, which is the prerogative of God alone. I mean, Jesus came right out and, uh, and claimed to be God, which is why the Jewish religious experts of the day wanted to kill him. And so if it's true, then we need to embrace his teaching, right? Because it is then the teaching of God himself. And the most basic tenet of that teaching is... God so loved the world that he gave his son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Here's my Reiki summary. Deity came for us to hang out with us, to provide human beings a living, breathing example of divine love and grace. Jesus came to offer what we cannot earn or buy or manipulate. He comes and forgives sin and grants life everlasting. The incarnation also demands that we embrace the mystery of it all. How does the invisible become visible? How does the eternal invade the temporal? How can deity mingle with humanity? How can God wrap himself with flesh and blood? If you can explain that to me, great, I am ready to listen. If you can't, no problems because I can't explain it either, which means as, as Christians, we have to accept and live with a paradox we can't fully comprehend or articulate. It's fascinating to me. You know, we live in a culture that has become quite cynical of organized religion and yet remains extremely spiritual. Over 90% of Americans believe in God. 
People have a, you know, people have this innate sense that something big exists beyond what we can see, touch, smell, taste, and experience. There's a common search for the transcendent, for something independent of the material universe. And people aren't dumb. I mean, people recognize that if God does indeed exist, then as human beings, we can't possibly know and understand everything about him. We just can't. And they're right. And sometimes I fear that as Christians, we lose people when we try to present God in a neatly packaged systematic theology where the implication is, hey, we've got God completely figured out. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying theology is bad. I'm not saying that God hasn't revealed enough about himself through nature and scripture and Jesus that we cannot know him. I'm just saying that we have to admit that when it comes to the creator of this universe, a tension exists between revealed truth and incomprehensible mystery. And I realize that makes some of us a little anxious, but we need to be okay with that tension. We need to be okay with that limitation. And the thing is, God's okay with it. In the Old Testament, there's a guy named Job. Uh, he lived a life much like ours. It had its ups and downs, its successes and failures. He, he experienced joy and he experienced a lot of suffering. So he experienced the good, the bad, and the really ugly and hard. And at one point along the way, Job was wrestling with the mystery of who, who God is and why does he do, do what he does and why does he allow things to happen the way they do. And, and he's kind of going on about it. And eventually God stops him and says to Job, hey, Job, no offense, but you do not know and cannot know everything about me. And God goes on for four chapters, kind of lecturing him. And finally, Job says, okay, Lord, okay, Lord, I get it. And he says this, I know you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Translation, Job says, God, you are God and I'm not. And so by faith, I'm just, I'm going to trust you. And the text says that the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Listen, in a universe created by a sovereign designer, who has a plan to redeem our world in us. There are things we can know and explain and things we can't. Science, technology, human reason can answer a lot of questions about life and our existence, but cannot explain everything. And so we live on a mysterious edge at a point where the natural is intersected by the supernatural. And as people of faith, as Christians in the church, we should be the first to admit that because at the very center of our theology rests Jesus, deity in the flesh, dwelling among us. When you talk about truth and mystery, if we affirm the incarnation, we have to embrace both of those. But we also have to embrace the concept of mission. The incarnation is, is all about mission. It's about God entering human, the human context to love, heal, serve, forgive, and ultimately rescue lost, rebellious, wounded, sinful people like me. And What's interesting is this divine mission began on a, on, a, on a local level. It started in a little town and then slowly expanded. Last week I mentioned uh, some of the things that I got to see the church and really God doing around the globe and in India and in the Middle East. And it's important to talk about those things because, and I just read recently uh, the number of Chinese Christians now outnumbers American Christians. It's important to talk about these things, about what God is doing, because the good news of God's love and grace is meant for everybody. We've already mentioned that. It's not limited by politics or international boundaries, because God loved the world so much he sent his son. The incarnation carries local, regional, and global purposes. But it started, it started with Jesus, dwelling among, hanging out with family, friends, and neighbors. Understand, God's in the fleshness had a very, you know, very practical, everyday aspect to it. Most of Jesus' time and energy centered around relationships. 
Jesus was a friend to average sinful people. The religious experts of the day had a, had a big problem with that and criticized Jesus for it. They called him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners. But that was the point. That was the point. That's what Jesus came to do, to hang out with lost men and women. And if you read through the entire Gospel of John, it's easy to, to see how Jesus pulled the mission off. Because basically in Jesus, God went to weddings he mingled with humanity. He entered into family life. I mean, he performed his first miracle at a wedding in, in Cana. And because at the reception, the family ran out of wine. And Jesus made more out of water so the celebration could continue as the best wine the people had tasted. God went to the workplace, to fishing boats and Roman tax booths. God went to temple where he participated in the religious life of his people. God went to wells, local watering holes, the, the first century Starbucks, if you will, you know, places where people went to, to get a drink and, and socialize and talk. Uh, God, God went to parties and to feasts where he shared in community life. God went to pools, public baths where people would go for ceremonial cleansing or baptizing and, and for prayer and for healing. And those pools were always located uh, in the public marketplace. So God went to market. He went to where people were shopping and buying and se selling goods and making money. And it's there where he said, where your money is, there your heart will be also. God went to picnics. At a big one, Jesus took some bread and sardines and fed 5,000 people fish sandwiches. God went on boat trips. He, God went to funerals. God went to small villages and big cities. He went to dinner parties, sometimes among friends, sometimes with strangers, sometimes among enemies. God went to court where he was trumped up on false charges, God went to the cross, a tool of execution. And in innocence gave his life a ransom for many. And from there, God went to the tomb. And three days later was resurrected to life, back hanging out in the cemetery, and then showing up in a locked room in Jerusalem, and then at a fish bake on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Listen, all of these things that are recorded in John's writing are, are recorded to validate what John asserts in his opening statement, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the, his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation is about mission. And get this, the last thing Jesus did on earth was to transfer that mission to his followers. After the resurrection, Jesus went to that room in Jerusalem where Peter and Matthew and John and all the rest were, were hanging out with no idea what to do next. And, and Jesus says to them, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That's mission language. Jesus says, don't, don't cloister yourselves away here. Get out, get into the community, get into the world. Live, love, give, serve, dwell among people. Incarnate yourselves in their lives. What does that mean? I think it means spending time in their homes and inviting others into yours. It means being a regular at Starbucks, the cultural connecting place and meeting people. It means participating in community life. And events, it means celebrating with those who rejoice. It means mourning with those who are suffering. Worshiping with others. It means that we give generously to those in need and we tend to the sick and we love the unlovable and we hang out with outcasts and we stand against evil and injustice. Jesus said, sacrifice yourselves for others. Listen to people's stories. Share your own. Speak the truth. Jesus said, tell people about me. Just make sure that your life supports your words. In Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples. That's missional language. Mark 16, go into the world. That's mission language. 
And then the, one of the last things Jesus said to his followers is recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Which, which brings me to the, the final way that God's all in. He's all indwelling. The Spirit of God himself indwells and empowers us, his people, for life and for mission. It's what Jesus promised. He told the disciples just hours before he was crucified. He said, the Father will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. He lives with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And then he said, and when the Spirit comes on you, you will receive power. And there's no denying it. I mean, in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came upon that, that first small group of Jesus' followers who were huddled together praying in a house in Jerusalem, the Spirit came and filled them, impassioned them, empowered them, and the church just exploded out of the walls of that church into the streets of Jerusalem and onto the historical scene, and the world has never been the same since. Don't you see that God has gone all in for us? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All in, loving, rescuing, indwelling, empowering us. Do we believe it? And if so, what is our response? Nobel Prize winning author and poet T.S. Eliot once said, The greatest proof of Christianity for others is not how far a man can logically analyze his reasons for believing, but how far in practice he will stake his life on his belief. In other words, he's saying the veracity of our faith and what we believe is measured by how we live, how we respond to all that God has done for us. Just over 100 years ago, at the turn of the 20th century, there was a group of Christians who were known as one-way missionaries. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. I just learned about this recently. But apparently this group of people would buy a, one, a one-way boat ticket to somewhere in the world. And instead of packing suitcases, they would pack their earthly belongings in coffins. And then they'd take their coffin with them. And as they sailed out of port, they would wave goodbye to those they loved, thinking they would probably never come back. And there was one guy in particular, a guy named Peter Milne. He was a one-way missionary, and he, he's a guy who felt called to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific, a place that was known for headhunters uh, who had killed every previous foreigner who showed up. Uh, Milne knew about that, but he didn't seem to uh, fear for his life. I guess in a way he had already died to himself, right? He had his coffin with him. And he went to New Hebrides, and for 35 years he lasted. And he lived among a primitive tribe of people who, who he loved and who came to love him. But more importantly, many came to love Jesus. And when Milne died, the tribe buried him and inscribed a plaque in his memory that said, When he came, there was no light. And when he left, there was no darkness. No, I, I asked these questions last Sunday, but I'm going to ask them again because I think we need to think about them as the church in America in the 21st century. When did we, as Christians, start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do cheap and easy things? When did we decide that faithfulness is about protecting the status quo? Godliness is mostly about what we know and less about what we do, and obedience is just showing up once a week to be entertained with no call to sacrifice. When did that happen? I don't know. I just know that Jesus knew nothing of that kind of superficial, easy believism. And, you know, understand, I'm not suggesting we all pack coffins and fly to Timbuktu. I'm simply asking us to think through and to be honest about how we are responding to what God has done for us. Because, look, people respond differently. I mean, so, some people find the idea of God's love and grace in Jesus really hard to accept. And, and they remain convinced that they've got to earn their way to heaven. That's religion. Some people believe 
but still respond out of a sense of guilt and say, wow, I guess I've got to do something here. God's up there. We're down here. Not up much in between. So I better pray a little bit more. Do this. Follow these rules uh, so God doesn't get mad at me again. But then there are others who, when they come to understand, really understand the love and grace of God and consider and weigh the reality of all that God has done and the extent to which he has gone all in for them, they, they're overwhelmed with joy and gratitude and want to go all in for God. They respond out of love. Here's the story of someone I know who's doing just that. Take a look. My name is Michelle Brancato. I did not grow up going to church. On the contrary, I've been to church more times this year than my whole entire life, and that is true. My father today, and since I was probably in high school, is claims to be an atheist. My mother is very religious, but I didn't understand that someone who who walked in faith and claimed to, you know, love God and, and follow God's principles could be abusive to your children and can be, you know, I just, I, none of that clicked. So it affected me tremendously. I didn't want anything to do with it. I was very turned off and made no sense to me. But, you know, from 2004 until 2010, I claimed to be an atheist, openly. Did I feel as if I was missing anything? Yes. My whole entire life. And I was constantly, constantly chasing after one thing or another to fill some kind of void. I'm being open and honest, whether it be drugs, which I struggled with severely. Try to fill, I was just trying to fill a void. So, 2010, the day is June 10th. I have two girls, Taylor and Emily. At the time, they were 15 and 16. On June 10th, I was in my kitchen, I was washing dishes, and I looked out at my youngest, Emily, and her friend, and they were doing backflips on the trampoline. And I said, you need to stop because someone's going to break their neck. And Emily's friend, Trey, says, oh, Miss B, you're just jealous because you can't do a backflip. My pride took over, my ego took over, and I took off my dishwashing gloves, and I'm like, uh, I was a cheerleader in high school as if it was last year. And I got on that trampoline and I, you know, jumped a couple times, did a backflip, would land on my knees. Third jump, I'm like, I got this, you know, and they're kind of egging me on. And I was just being silly. And I landed right on my head. And I, I broke my neck. And at that time, I started to pray. Um, I started to pray, I, I literally prayed to a God I didn't know. And I believe those were the first words that came out of my mouth. You know, God, I don't even know if you exist. I don't know if you're up there. If you change this, you know, I'll I'll do anything. The bargaining started at that point. Long story short, went to the hospital, a neurosurgeon. I was blessed to have top three in the country. He just happened to be on call. And he came in and, you know, I'm still laying there. And he goes, you broke your neck. He's like, you, you broke your neck. And he's like, "Uh, you're not going to walk. And I said, um, sorry. I was like, what do you mean? Like, it just didn't make sense. Because every day I was praying, like I'm talking nonstop, just praying, please. And um, I started feeling almost, almost like you're coming out of a sleep, like if your arm falls asleep, that feeling in my fingertips and in my toes. I had my roommate call the nurse because I couldn't really do much. Um, And he actually talked me out of it. He said, no, he's like, you're not feeling anything. A lot of people that are very active, um, like I was, sometimes it's psychological. A couple hours later, I knew, I said, I'm feeling something. Long story short, neurosurgeon came, they called the neurosurgeon, he took this little prickly thing on my foot and uh, I felt it and my toes started wiggling. 
So that is how I found my faith. And I promise, part of my bargaining, I will say, was that if you change this, I, I will believe that you exist and I will never look back. And then I decided to just randomly one Sunday, I just, I, I prayed that morning. I'm like, I'm sick of auditioning churches. I, I want to find my home. And um, I walked in the door and I'm not kidding. Immediately, I had a sense of this is, this is good. And I knew that I was going to be going, I was going to be returning at that point. I walked out of the, uh, the church and not even out of the church, just into the lobby area. And um, I had prayed about just growing. I didn't know what to do. I really didn't. I know I didn't want to do what my mom did at all. I was lost. I didn't. I didn't know what to do. So I was praying about that. Um, and now I know. You know, the Holy Spirit definitely guided me toward uh, Kim Whetstone, who happened to be at a round table over there. And I told her my story in a nutshell. And she was just getting the book, The Starting Point, by Annie Stanley for a Bible study that just happened to be starting that Friday. Um, and I'm like, I want, I want to join. So that's how Parkview came, came to be my home. He, God is, trans, is transforming me. So knowing that and, and finding myself in Christ and, and growing in Christ, I have just this, just a, it's a different confidence I have. It's a real, it's a real confidence. My father, who is claims to be an atheist, he is one of my best friends, and. Uh, he loves the changes. I mean, same thing with him. He's like, I am so proud of you. Now, when I say, you know, Dad, I, it's, this, is, this is God working, you know, Matthew 19, 26. All things are possible, you know. And he's like, Michelle, haven't you ever just thought that it's you that wanted to change, that you were just done? Sure. Yes, I have many times. And I've tried many times. But without God, I failed. Without the community and being connected um, through Parkview and the people there, I would not be where I am today. That's, I wouldn't be, there's no way. You know, my friends from the past, and I look at my friends today, and it's such a, so healthy in the way it should be. You know, people love each other. People are caring, they're thoughtful. You know, people put themselves behind others to, to help. and. You know, God makes my life make sense, that's for sure. Um, just everything I'd gone through, and it wasn't pretty. You know, I'll be honest, I, went, I, I had a, a very rough upbringing. God has changed all of that, and I, I just want to give back, I just, and I really do. My life today, because God went all in, is about God, and I'm so grateful. I want, to, uh, I want to thank Michelle for sharing her story with us, and she really is a, a person who's going, who's gone all in and going all out, and she just, uh, I think two Sundays ago, introduced me to a, a friend of hers who, she, uh, who is also an atheist who's just recently received Jesus as Savior, so I, I, I want to thank Michelle for sharing with us, and you know, here's the deal, God has gone all in for you, each and every one of you. No matter who you are, where you're from, where you've been, what you're doing, he's gone all in. And maybe you've never made that kind of commitment to be a Christian. You need to understand that becoming a Christian is not about what you can do for God, but what he has already done for you. See, that's the difference between religion and Christianity. Because God has loved you before you even knew him, before you even believe. 
And he sent Jesus to live the life, the perfect life you could never live, I could never live, die the death we all deserve to die. And by grace offers us life, offers you life. And maybe it's time for you to embrace that reality and decide to become a follower of Jesus if you've never done it before. If you believe that Jesus has done all that, that God has gone in, you consider yourself a Christian, then here's the question for you. What practical difference is it making in your everyday life? God has gone all in for you. How have you, how are you going all in for him? You know, my hope and my prayer is that we will be a church of all-in people, uh, people who are all-in and ready to go all out for God and for the gospel of grace. You know, we may not pack our coffins and ship off to the New Hebrides, but we are willing to make a sacrifice for the sake of, of lost people God cares about in our local community, in our region, and in our world. Let's pray. Our Father, I want to thank you for your goodness to us, even when we don't deserve it. And the fact that you loved us before we even knew who you were or are. That you loved me, even while I was a broken, messed up person. You, you loved me. And that's true of everyone in this room. It's true of our world, as John has told us. That because of your love for our world, you sent Jesus for us. And we're grateful for that. And I pray for those who might be here this morning who've never, who have never really come to grips with that reality, that Jesus, whose life and death and resurrection changed the course of human history, it has changed the course of my life and the life of millions of people. But has it changed all of our lives? That's the question. And I pray this morning for those who've maybe never come to faith, never placed their faith in Jesus, that today might be the day they would do that recognizing that they can't work their way into heaven. And that's, that's not what you ask us to do. It's all about your grace and goodness, your love. It's about faith in Jesus, your son. And I pray that they would make that commitment today. And those of us who have known Jesus, either for a short time or many years, I pray, Lord, that you would re reignite a fire within us to make a difference in our world, both locally and regionally and globally, because you have called us to mission. You've called us to sacrifice. You've called us to make a spiritual difference in the lives of men, women, children, here and around the world. And I pray that we would take that, that mission seriously. And I pray that we would make a difference in our culture and in our communities. And Lord, I pray that no matter what, through it all, that we would be people who, who thank you for Jesus and worship you because of all that you've done for us in him. You have gone all in, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We worship you and say thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.